0: This week on Hacker in the Fed, Hector makes some predictions about the hacks we're going to see in 2023. We talk about bug bounty hunters and how they're not being paid what they deserve, and they may take their exploits to the dark web. We discuss another big API data leak. Then Hector tells us a story about a hack he did on Super Bowl Sunday. Finally, we help a listener with spoofed calls and text messages.
1: Hector Monseager was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks former ever. FBI special agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants participated in some of the world's most infamous
0: hacks that caused up to $50 million in damages, a life in the shadows, cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hackering the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined as always by Hector Monsiker, former Black Hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for the large number of systems that he had the skill set to hack into. Now red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Also friend and podcast co-host. Hello, my friend. How was your week? It's been, uh, as usual, very busy. How about yours? Yeah, busy, but busy is good. Keeps me out of trouble. Same here. <laughs> How's everything with Naxo going? It's going well. Thank you for asking. I appreciate that. So uh, yeah, you know, we've got a lot of big cases. We're we're actually uh, traveling down to DC to meet with a bunch of clients this week. So it'll be it'll be fun to to see people in person again. It's nice that we're getting kind of away from you know the COVID lifestyle of uh, just everything happening on Zoom and, and meeting people in person.
1: Oh yeah, no, that's a great thing, and um, I'm sure when it comes down to these, like I know I know some of these cases are very sensitive. You know, I can understand why they would love to meet you face to face because it's just that human element of assurances and, you know, that, that really goes a long way. Right. If, if I was dealing with a scenario without mentioning any examples here where, you know, I felt like <laughs> I felt like, you know, my back was against the wall and I needed help. Uh, I, I tell you, you flying in would help me more than you, you hopping on a Zoom call, at least yeah. for me.
0: No, I agree. And, and to be honest with you, I mean, who wouldn't want to see my beautiful face? <laughs> very true. Very what the true. fuck are
1: you laughing at? I mean, yeah, this is a handsome guy, you know. What can I say?
0: <laughs> so I'm going to let the audience in on a little secret of Hacker in the Fed there. Uh, Hector, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm betraying your confidence here. Um, the audience uh, might not know this, but we, we sit around and talk for like an hour uh, today, well over an hour uh, before the show, just uh, catching up with each other and seeing what's going on. So um, you said something interesting in our, in our pre-call uh, before recording the pod. Uh, you said that you have some, maybe some ideas of what possibly is going to happen in 2023 uh, because some of the things you're seeing in the news today. You uh, Are you bold enough to make those predictions here on, on the podcast?
1: Yeah. You know what? I'm bold enough to make some predictions here. I mean, the worst case scenario, I'm wrong. I've been wrong before in my life. I could deal with it. So here's what we know. Here's where we stand, okay? You have... A lot of organizations that are being ransomware or ransomed not paying their ransomware. So depending on which media outlet or which journalist you actually subscribe to, you'll notice that there's some data coming out that overall ransomware groups are making less money this year. Okay. Uh, so that's that's one interesting indicator and point to kind of keep in the back of your mind. The second thing is over the last week, we've seen over the, over the last few weeks, actually, we've seen... Major companies, okay, and we're just going to focus on the big companies, the Amazons of the world, okay, Uh, they're releasing tens of thousands of employees all at the same time. And you have to assume that at the very least, a small percentage of those will be disgruntled. Disgruntled employees are leaving their businesses, they're, they're leaving their positions. And uh, against their will, in some cases, right? These are folks that have probably been working for some of these companies for a long time. Now, if you guys remember from the last episode we did, there was a discussion around the Department of Interior. I could be wrong, Chris. Uh, nope, but it's right. of, Yeah. And they released a very interesting article. We discussed it in depth. So I'm not going to go too deep into it today. But they, they brought up a very good point that within the government, from what they're seeing and looking at raw data, and I've seen this as well as a Pentest or Red Teamer, There are companies that will fire an employee, maybe disable their MFA access, but the internal domain credentials are still very much active. In the in the uh, Department of Interior uh, report, it was something like anywhere between ten to thirty percent. From what they were saying, I could agree with that. That's what I'm seeing in the real world as well. Uh, Now, if you're if you're looking at the grand scheme of things, and if you're looking at the big companies releasing up to a hundred thousand employees over the last you know couple weeks. Uh, you have to assume that at least a small percentage of these accounts are probably going to be active somewhere, more than likely internally. And so, it comes to my prediction. We've always heard and we've always talked about the insider threats, the rogue actor, okay? Well, I think this year is probably going to be that year. There's a lot of folks out there with a lot of, uh, you know, amazing talents and skill sets that are likely to be disgruntled, they are likely to be able to at the very least, want to sell their credentials or even sell intelligence or intel about their former businesses, okay? Uh, This includes everything from attack surfaces, uh, URLs that you wouldn't see on Shodan or Google, um, host names, DNS domains that, you know, bug bounty researchers or bad actors may not even know about, that now will probably be public knowledge. And so I feel that we're going to see more insider threat attacks Um, as folks start to worry about their jobs and their positions. So that's one of the predictions I'll make, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, I have a 50-50 chance of being wrong here, but I think that that's something we're definitely going to see more of this year.
0: So more of or the most prominent hacking is going to be from the insider threat?
1: I think more of. We're still, we're still going to see ransomware attacks
0: and phishing. You're going to see a lot of phishing attacks.
1: Yeah, we're still going to see phishing attacks. We're still going to see social engineering attacks, spear phishing attacks. You name it. You're going to see a lot more SMS-based phishing attacks because I've, I, I can attest that SMS-based phishing is is even way more successful uh, than email-based phishing. Um, I, I just read a report the other day of someone dropping USB sticks in parking lots, and that still works, right? So yeah, we're still gonna see the conventional low-hanging fruit attacks. That's gonna be a thing. Um, but now, you know, the major difference is that we have a ton of disgruntled people with a ton of knowledge and insights that may just YOLO or may just want a quick buck and say, Well, I could get you access to an internal network, but it's gonna cost you. When you look at groups like Lapsus last year, right? Lapsus was an interesting group because they weren't necessarily hackers, but they had money and they were able to purchase credentials and cookies for accounts on computers that were compromised and sold online. And that's how they were able to compromise big companies um, without mentioning their names. But there were several companies that that were compromised in a matter of weeks. Okay, We're going to see more than likely more more of that. There was a very interesting situation that happened over the last few days. It's kind of been playing out on Twitter. I first saw it January 19th. So there is a security researcher from China. I don't want to mess up this guy's name, but the Twitter... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Twitter account is Yanzi Shuang. I, I might be pronouncing it wrong. I apologize. Um, this, this person uh, was able to identify um, a very serious local privilege escalation attack on the most recent Windows um, distributions or versions. He approached Microsoft with a bug report. And uh, because of whatever nuances were in place, they downgraded the uh, not only the severity uh, of, of the issue, Um, But the payout of the issue, all the way down to $5,000. If you look through the Twitter thread, there's a lot of great, amazing security researchers on that thread. And they're like, wait, hold on a second. That vulnerability, that research, at a minimum, is worth $50,000 plus. So why did Microsoft go this route? Well, I cannot speculate for Microsoft. But I will say this. If security researchers are being pushed away by vendors, then we're going to have a problem. The problem is you're going to have these researchers probably going to the dark web and or going to private companies that resell and weaponize these exploits by nation state actors.
0: This is a couple points, Tector, that, you, you know, between last week's episode and this week's episode, you predict the more insiders. Uh, we talked about an insider last week selling access to sensitive data with inside, which we, we speculate is a network that that, that person may control. Um, and now we have a security researcher who found a vulnerability, and he did what he thought was right, and he went to the company that you know the vulnerability was found in, uh, and submitted it. And you know, in this world, you know, people get paid for that. Uh, that's a common thing. Uh, it, it normally happens, and, and it's it, it sort of almost substantial because you're doing, you know, you're doing work for this company and making it more secure. Um, Microsoft came back and said that, you know, because the original submission was on Windows 10, um, and I'll add that this this version of Windows 10 is is scheduled for retirement, not until October 14th of 2025, um, but because it wasn't on the the latest version of Windows, that's why they're going to pay him 10% of what it's really worth.
1: Oh, yeah. And I could understand that point from the vendor's perspective, but still, he responded back saying, oh, by the way, this also works in the latest version of your products. And even then, with that knowledge, they still decided to go this route. Now, so what does that do overall within this specific sector community? And I'm, re- I'm referring really to the the researchers and exploit developers, right? These people are extremely important, very important. And if, you, if you're seeing researchers from like China, for example, trying to do the right thing, and they're being pushed away, then that's a problem. Because he could have easily gone to the PRC or the, the Chinese government and said, look, here's what I got for you guys, right? Uh, no, he went to the vendor. But I've seen this scenario kind of break into debates because there are other people that say, well, if you are a researcher and you find a vulnerability, you should just be happy with reporting and fixing the issue and not expect a big payout, right? So that's, that's like the devil's advocate perspective.
0: But I mean, so really when they're finding these exploits, how much time and effort are these guys putting in for this?
1: Likely months. Like, this is not something you discover over 24 hours.
0: And and so how do these people think they shouldn't be compensated for that effort?
1: I mean, that's a great point. You bring up a fantastic point. If Microsoft or any vendor does not have a bug bounty program, then yes, there should be no expectation that you would even get paid. But Microsoft has a bug bounty program specifically for this. And uh, because of that nuance, hey, your uh, your proof of concept uh, was tested on Windows 10 rather than the latest Windows 11 they use that kind of an excuse not to pay the guy what he deserves. And that's problematic. And that's something that we're going to see more and more as we move forward. Um, and I'm hoping that, you know, we we, we come into, uh, or we kind of reach some sort of resolve where in the event of vendors not willing to to work with you within, their, within the guidelines of their own uh, platform, there should be somewhere else where you could go. Like Mitter, like NIST, right? Or, uh, the computer emergency response team, somebody where they could work with you on dealing with this and making sure that you get paid uh, appropriately, but yeah, no, this was a tragedy, Chris, in my opinion
0: no i, I I'm sure this is just one incident of, of we're seeing a lot of across the, you know the industry of this going this way where the uh, you know the vendors running these uh, bug bounties are, are really not you know they're trying to cheap out on it, which uh, you know isn't right for for these guys. Uh, because it is too easy to go to the dark side and, and sell these things on either dark markets or to, you know, even to like pen testing companies uh, that just want to, you know, say, hey, look, I was able to get into this system. Uh, you know, you should hire me to be able to do that more uh, instead of, you know, the alternative is securing this product uh, that much more for, for the rest of us, for, for everyone in the industry. Um, so, so yeah, it's definitely problematic and, and, uh, you know, something needs to be fixed now a, an outside agency or some government agency or something like that, um, that, that kind of pays and to fix a uh, vendor's products. I don't agree with that. Um, I don't, I don't think we should be using, uh, you know, uh, government money or, you know, the people's money, tax money to pay, pay people to fix private industries issues. Um, you know, private industry should be fixing that, I, you know. I guess that's not a very good solution to say that, you know, we all should not use some sort of product because they're not paying bug bounty people. That's not really an answer. But paying for something where a company becomes more secure, it eh, doesn't sound right to me either.
1: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, because even if you were to say, well, you know, CISA would be willing to to kind of act as a mitigator or rather as an intermediary between, you know, researchers and the vendors. CISA's already, you know, kind of overwhelmed. They're trying to basically build out frameworks for companies within the US um, to kind of deal with uh, ransomware and insider threats and tra- transitioning over to zero trust or even trying to define what zero trust is, right?
0: They better start working hard on the insider threat if your, your prediction comes through. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, for sure. There's, there's, there's a lot of issues that we're trying to deal with kind of at the same time. In a way, ransomware, these ransomware groups um, and kind of the auto scaling and, and and the effectiveness of how these groups operate over the last, you know, four years, or whatever, has really highlighted so many issues that we kind of need to deal with. And I think that we're in a better place, believe it or not. OK, I think that we're in a much better place because we're talking about this stuff. But there was a point of time where folks weren't talking about this or it was an inconvenient truth or an inconvenient matter to deal with. I remember doing pen tests, you know, so many years ago. And the clients, all they cared about was kind of clicking a checkbox, you know, taking a checkbox off. Like, yeah, we did a pen test this year. That's it. We're good. And I come back the next year and do the same, same pen test and the same kind of vulnerabilities and attack maps are available. And so the response is, well, you know, budget, you know, constraints and uh, we don't have the human resources to kind of deal with these problems right now. Or the security program is not mature enough to deal with that right now. Until you saw them in the news six months later, you know, getting lambasted by the community for not dealing with a breach appropriately, right? So yeah, so things are changing. We're in a much better place, but yeah, there's still a lot of issues we kind of need to figure out as we go.
0: Certainly is. So did you see this week that uh, T-Mobile filed a form 8K with the uh, SEC or the United States, the Security and Exchange Commission. And and an 8K is a a form that's used to notify investors in the United States that public companies of specific events uh, that may be important to shareholders. So uh, I think this one that they filed on January 19th was to say that they, uh, they lost some data or somebody gained unauthorized access to certain data.
1: Oh, yeah. And what did we talk about last time? API security, right? Uh, within the 8K form, we have some, some insights as to what may have happened here. Going back to January 5th or so, uh, the supposed hacker had obtained data uh, through an API endpoint without authorization.
0: Just to remind the audience, API is an application programming interface. It's a way for two or more computers uh, to communicate with each other.
1: And so imagine if you have a legacy front end uh, or a website, um, and as you're clicking and, and the, the site you know, has been implemented to be reactive, then it would have to execute queries in the background. Okay. I mean, we talked about this last time, but the reality is, is that as organizations implement more and more API endpoints... Um, you know, they're expanding their attack surface. We saw this with Twitter recently. Now we have seen it with T-Mobile where an attacker was able to, one, identify an API endpoint with access controls that were not, um, I would say, appropriate. And two, it allowed the adversary to extract very sensitive information about the accounts that they were targeting. So they essentially enumerated everything from uh, account names to billing addresses, emails, phone numbers, the T-Mobile account number, and, and you name it. Um, it was there. Obviously, they didn't get passwords. They didn't get social security numbers. But there's enough information there to to allow the adversary to engage in a social engineering campaign.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it looks like, you know, from their investigation, over a 41-day period between, you know, uh, November 25th through January 5th, the attacker was able to get data from the API for approximately 37 million current, post-paid, and prepaid customers. Uh, and like Hector said, that include name, billing address, email address, phone number, date of birth, uh, T-Mobile account number, uh, information about the number of lines on the account and the planned features. Everything that a hacker would need in order to socially engineer their way in to get further access uh, into T-Mobile uh, user accounts. So, Hector, you brought up a point that this hacker was able to find this API. How does an attacker go around looking for APIs? I mean, what, what it was? What's the methodology? Uh, when when you're searching for this sort of data uh, endpoint?
1: Yeah, that is such a great question. If you are an adversary or a researcher, you're curious, maybe you're a developer, you kind of want to see how um, an application works on the back end, um, at least from the perspective of API calls, what you would do is you would use something like Burp Suite or uh, OWASP's tool called Zap. Uh, There's some other tools out there that allow you to kind of do a man in the middle. Basically, that's what we're doing. That's what we're focusing on from a auditor's perspective or an assessor's perspective. We want to intercept the requests that are being done between our web browser and the applications backend API endpoints. Because of the man in the middle uh, scenario, we're able to see the exact requests, the exact responses, as well as perimeters and the kind of data that's expected from us, from the browser, and what kind of data we're getting back. So, If an adversary was trying to identify potentially sensitive endpoints, what they would want to do is uh, open up something like Burp Suite, connect to the website, navigate the website, click around until they got full coverage of what the web application um, should offer in terms of of functionality. Go to Burp Suite or go to their proxy and start to go through these different requests. There, if we were to kind of go back in time to November so-and-so when this attack first first took place, uh, the adversary would go to his request until he found an endpoint that returned a ton of sensitive data without too much personal information or the input. And so that's the methodology, Chris.
0: And is that noisy? Or like if, if I'm sitting there at T-Mobile guarding the, the, all this data, uh, am I going to see this? Am I gonna, what, what is it going to look like from my end from guarding it?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Realistically, this is a very passive process. So from T-Mobile's perspective, they would see normal requests. It's only until the adversary starts to fuzz or try to enumerate specific endpoints for more information is when it becomes noisy. I'll give you an example. So in the event the adversary identifies an insecure direct object reference, or IDOR, um, which allows an, an, an adversary to enumerate or iterate, rather, uh, an identifier. So let's say, you know, T-Mobile.com slash user slash one would return back the first account on T-Mobile.com. And that's just a very gross example, okay? Now, if they were able to brute force that all the way to a 1,000 places, now you would get account information for everyone from the first account to the thousands of accounts, right? And so now you're starting to pull a bunch of information. Yes, at that point, it is noisy for the defenders,
0: so the 37 million records that we see coming out of here in, you know, let's let's say they spread across evenly across the 41 days. Is that is that noisy? Are we going to see network logs that uh, that shows this? Like, what do you think tripped up? How, how do you think T-Mobile found this?
1: Yeah. So would it, ha- would it have been noisy? Yes. Would there be a ton of logs on the back end somewhere? Yes. Now, it all depends on what the vendor in this scenario does with their logs. Okay. If they're storing logs in some sort of storage somewhere and nobody's looking at it, only in the event of debugging or in investigations, then yeah, it makes sense why it was missed for 41 plus days. If they're not properly logging, um, you know, requests um, and they're not looking at thresholds, for example, if TMobile.com gets 50 million requests a day, but now they're getting $51 million starting tomorrow, I mean, 51 million requests tomorrow, Right. Somewhere, somewhere I should probably investigate that because there is a, a substantial uh, raise in the number of requests that, um, that these servers are getting. So could Timo have found this attack earlier? Absolutely. But then again, we don't know what their backend is and we have no idea how they're looking through logs.
0: It may be like, you know, like maybe not 50 million every single day, just use hard numbers. Maybe it's like 45 on Tuesdays or, or you know, 53 on, on Fridays. And so, you know, we'll kind of talk about this later in the, in the, the episode. But, uh, you know, the timing of these logs and the timing of the requests are kind of important when you're, when you're watching this sort of thing, when you're, when you're guarding the, the network.
1: Oh, yeah. No, it, it's problematic for the Defender, 100%. Like, there's one thing I don't want the audience to kind of walk away with is that I'm not, you know, admonishing the defenders here. Not at all. Um, the reality is that there's metrics. And depending on what you do with those metrics, it could be very effective in identifying an attack. Or if you're not really handling the metrics right, or um, the metrics are not part of like your methodology, then, you know, it kind of makes sense why you would miss something like this. It's also important, this is, this is why I think DevOps security or DevOps sec, which is a very kind of recent um, job position, goes a long way because more than likely in a DevOps sec scenario, the managers would have probably identified this information leak early on before deployment. So something else to think about for, for the audience out there
0: So I want to go back to you talked about the tools that you would use to kind of go around and look for these APIs on a website, and how you kind of take that information and exploit it. When you use these tools and you connect to it to the API and, and see what kind of you know data can come out of that, how are you authenticating to that? Like how is that how is that data being controlled on the API side to say that yes, I should be sending this data over, I, requesting uh, address.
1: Yeah, no, that's another fantastic question. Remember, as we're using something like, Burp is the best example I can give you, and you guys can download it for free and experiment at home, okay? Uh, Burp is a great tool because it kind of acts like a proxy, and it also provides you the opportunity to kind of launch a web browser directly from the app. Any requests, any traffic that you engage within its internal web browser immediately goes to its internal proxy. So if you were to go to a website and log into the website, from that internal browser, okay? From the backend, it, it's totally fine. It looks like just a regular normal user logging into their browser. Um, the difference is that here you're intercepting the traffic. So you're actually able to see the data that goes and comes back from those from that website. So yeah, from, from the defenders perspective, unless you have a very obvious user agent or something that would give away the interception, um, they probably won't be able to identify that you're, you're proxying your web browser requests. API security is very important. And I'll, and I'll kind of tag it along with my, this year's predictions, right? So aside from rogue actors and insider threats, um, API security, I feel is going to be a big problem. A lot of organizations, uh, big, small, medium, doesn't matter. As you're deploying custom applications, they're kind of expanding their attack surface. The more API endpoints you have, the more potential for an, uh, for an adversary to identify even the slightest of misconfigurations. And that would be enough for them to leverage it in some way. So yes, as you move forward, as you start to deploying web applications, make sure that you have a methodology in place to, to do some sort of auditing prior to deployment with every change that you make. It's extremely important. But here's the good news, Chris. There's a lot of great tools, free and not so free, that help you with this process, okay? So we're not all shit out of luck here. <laughs> well, that's good news, I guess. And you know, the the last thing I'll say on this point here, in regards to like API security, I mean, if you if you guys have like you know, if you guys want food for thought, then I have a recipe for that, and that is, um, as you start to work in whatever industry you're in, right? Let's say you're you're let's say you're an attorney you're listening to the podcast. As an attorney, for example, intellectual property is extremely important. That includes contracts, that includes emails, correspondence between you and clients. So you want to make sure that part of your task for this week is to speak with your security team. If you're the person handling security, look at your email security, look at you know the policies you have in place to deal with all sorts of different uh, attacks. Feel free to shoot us an email, right? We'll answer any questions. But the point is that we all play a very important role in the overall security posture, not only of our businesses and our personal lives, but our of our country as well, um, and and respective countries. We have a lot of fans from around the world, so this this applies to everybody listening.
0: Very good words, Hector. I uh, I appreciate you telling the audience all that. So, we teased the audience last week about talking about timings of attack. Uh, you know when an attack would happen uh, specifically. Like uh, we see a lot of things, and and this happened to a lot in the FBI. We would get a hot call at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Um, Because attackers know that's when people kind of want to get off and go, you know, start the weekend, you know, and and start maybe cracking a can of beer and and start, uh, you know, living their life and enjoying their time off. Um, A lot of times it was on a Friday before a long weekend. You know, that's when I knew people really would kind of leave around noon on Friday and not watch so much. Hector, what's your experience with timings of attacks?
1: Oh, man. So I do have a story for the audience here. Um, it happens, you know, over 20 years plus ago. So let me lay out the premise, okay? At that time, and this is before FanDuel and, you know, all these different like sport betting sites, right? Uh, and before it became legal here in the U.S., there were a ton of illegal sport bet sites and casinos online, a ton of them. They were all over the place. And this is this was even before crypto became, you know, uh, prominent in those parts of the industries. So you would have show companies here in the U.S. accept payments, and then they'll add credits to your account. And the casino itself would probably be overseas, right? It'll be in Macau, or it'll be in like Chile, Costa Rica. So there was a point where you had a ton of illegal online casinos and sports betting sites that would try to target uh, U.S. customers, uh, Americans, and, and other countries that that still forbid online casinos in some, in some capacity. The way these companies operated is that they would have shell companies here in the US, and then they would also have kind of like a back-end casino sitting somewhere else, like in Macau or Costa Rica, Chile, et cetera. It was a big business, guys. Like we're talking about millions and millions and millions of dollars a day. Um, it was kind of a big deal. And so it just so happens that I had a friend's friend, friend reach out to me. He said, Hey, heck, look, here's the situation: there's this place, it's an online casino we need to take it offline for the Super Bowl weekend. Uh-oh. Hell oh, yeah. And I said, uh, well, remember, guys, I'm not glorifying any of this, and I'm not proud of this. Um, but the idea was for me to target this uh, casino and bring them offline. It was a very specific casino. Uh, they were actually based in, in Costa Rica. And the the whole idea was not to destroy the company, okay, but to, to cause enough dis- uh, disruptions that other casinos within that same part of the industry uh, could flourish and take traffic in, all right? That's what it was. I had about three weeks to compromise that target. I was given the domains. I was given some of the players, and these were Americans that were living in Costa Rica, and they were living the high life in mansions and doing pretty well for themselves. They had uh, access to ISP. They had, like, you know, uh, fiber lines already. The point is that... Uh, they had an infrastructure in place that I was supposed to compromise, and I'll tell you how much I got paid for this. By the way, at the end of the story, just so you guys could laugh along with me. So I had identified that the casino had a webmail server. That webmail server was actually very archaic. Uh, it was using a, a version of software that I've never seen before. It wasn't like an exchange online. It wasn't like a you know a Google Workspace format. It was a front end, but it was like open web mail or PHP mail or anything like that, horde, et cetera. So naturally, as a researcher, my goal now is to identify, are there other servers around the internet with this software? Or is this 100% custom? I identified that indeed it was not custom and there were other servers, mostly casinos, using the same exact product. So now the next step was to be to now audit the application and try to identify vulnerabilities. Oddly enough, there really weren't much. Uh, Things like SQL injections weren't really common there. So anyways, I had identified what it was using on the back end. I knew, I kind of knew what the application probably was doing. It was a webmail front end. So I did the lowest hanging fruit possible attack at the moment that I could think of, which was, well, what if I just start brute forcing accounts? And that was successful. In fact... I broke into the marketing account. I broke into the uh, internal uh, ops accounts, and then I uh, created a, a remote access tool. It was very, very cheesy, but um, it worked very well because it was not detected by you know antivirus at the time, and EDRs weren't a big thing yet. So uh, I was able to get access to uh, to some accounts on that network. By sending emails from, from those those internal accounts to other members of the company saying, hey, we have this awesome new screensaver for Super Bowl weekend for the company. Check this out. They would download the screensaver. Screensavers were working, by the way. But on the back ends, they would actually reach out to me to a command and control server, and from there I would access um, you know, the file system. Okay. So now we're getting super nerdy. Now let's get to the fun part. Well, the fun part for the uh, the person that asked me to do this. Uh, And the terrible part for the people that actually had to deal with the consequences of this action. So now the idea was, can I move laterally from that network into their servers, actually hosting the casino backends? The answer was yes. Why? The reuse of passwords. The reuse of passwords allowed me to move laterally from the endpoints that I compromised through that webmail client uh, over to the uh, casino servers, which were running Linux. And they were actually administered by um, by a data center out here in the United States, and one by uh, a security professional, without mentioning that person's name. Were these admin passwords that allowed you to move laterally? No, these were user account passwords. Okay, uh, that allowed me to log in over SSH, but then I had to get local root access to the servers themselves, uh, which I did using a series of vulnerabilities that you know were out there in the open and and. Uh, one specific one that I found that was, uh, specific to Debian. Uh, lo and behold, now I have root access to a bunch of casino servers, um, somewhere within the U.S. and somewhere within Costa Rica. And now it's where it gets crazy. So remember, I was told, yeah, just, you know, just, just cause enough disruption. Uh, just don't destroy anything. I wouldn't be surprised if the person asking for this takedown was probably friendly with the casino that was being targeted. So. With that being said, guys, I sat there and I sat there and I waited until Super Bowl weekend and literally the day of Super Bowl weekend or the Super Bowl, I began taking down web servers and began taking down, um, you know, SSH servers. And I left the servers online enough that no data was destroyed, but they weren't functional as the coin toss happened, as the Super Bowl uh, commercials came online, right? The idea here is that as an adversary, I had identified a weakness in their, not only in the infrastructure, but had identified a specific time and date that would affect the company enough to cause a disruption enough that would be fruitful for other people in the industry, other adversaries. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a crazy time, Chris, not only because it happened and I was part of that, but because of how successful it was. Remember. The administrators hopped online. They did everything they did to get the servers back online. But now they had to deal with incident response. And even though I did nothing to alter their data, right, they still had to keep the servers offline to do incident response. And thus, their Super Bowl weekend giveaways and all that stuff were disrupted. So it was a a successful mission. It was very weird to kind of experience that because I was the one doing it.
0: Hmm, that, that is interesting. Like, Yeah, so not only did you cause reputational harm, uh, but yeah, shutting him down, probably one of the biggest gambling weekends there is. I just want to let the audience know this was a long, long, long time ago. Um, and so it, it's nothing that Hector has done recently. It was, it was well before I ever knew him. Um, and, and Again, something that he's not proud of, just a story to tell about a timing of attacks. Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, you know, kind of like I said, you know, it's, it's, I'm not here to glorify this stuff, but it's good to share this perspective because it gives you some insights on how to deal with something like this if it happens to you. For example, if you are a casino right now, or not even a casino, you could be a sports betting site or you could be some sort of other analytics site that people kind of depend on you for. If you know that there's a big event coming and you know that you may be a target of that, um, you know, of, of adversary during that event, you may want to be proactive about your security measures. Something that Chris and I always talk about literally in each episode be proactive, consider the worst case scenario, and when when it's needed, expect that you've already been compromised. And at that point, now you're able to kind of maneuver around. Well, how do we deal with a compromise if it goes that far? Okay, uh, all all important points here, and uh, you know, and there's other much cooler stories out there in the world, like the the hack of the Bank of Bangladesh and so on. Uh, you would have noticed that adversaries will either wait for a very important holiday or or Super Bowl style event. But in the event of compromising Windows hosts, adversaries may also wait till Wednesday of the week to do a compromise or ransomware campaign. Now the question is why? Because usually uh you know you have vendors like Microsoft who do patch Tuesdays. And so they do a bunch of patches Monday night, Tuesday morning. Um there's a bunch of research there's a lot of folks kind of maneuvering around those vulnerabilities and those patches. That when Wednesday comes around and folks are still busy working with that content, now you're forcing the vendor to start working on that fix and working on patches for that issue. They could either release it the same day, they could release it Friday, or it might open the door for an entire week of waiting till next past Tuesday. Something to think about, guys. Okay.
0: It's very insightful, Hector, to to bring that to the audience. that, That you know, the timing of attack is very important. Uh, when they're going after their their targets, so thank you for that story. I appreciate it.
1: Oh yeah, well, did you ever experience something like that when you was uh, with the FBI?
0: Oh, le- I mean, like I said at the beginning, that we would always get the hot call on Fridays. That something crazy is happening. We're seeing seeing anomalies in the traffic. We're you know we need help over here, and you know we're counting down the minutes till we can go to the bar and start you know. Blowing off some steam, uh, and then lo and behold, uh, the we're we working the whole weekend from that point on. So yeah, we always we always waited for Friday four o'clock until five o'clock was always the roughest time. Pins and needles.
1: Oh man, and I, I could I, I almost feel like if four o'clock came and went, and you had you guys heard nothing, you would have probably you probably were the happiest motherfuckers on the planet. I mean, <laughs> I, I can imagine that. Well, you know that's the thing, right? You bring up a very good point. You know, I have a lot of respect for you for you know for you personally, right? Uh, and of course your work ethic. Um, but there's one thing that, that I think that we need to kind of show, you know, to, to kind of blue teamers, defenders, and so on, is is that respect. I don't feel like a lot of blue teamers get it. You know, they're working those weekends, they're working on call, they're working the you know, uh off hours and and, and if if a compromise happens on the network, they have to jump into action. Uh, I mean, for the most part, you know, they they get paid pretty well, but I gotta tell you, I have to really tell you. That a lot of those guys are probably not getting the the, the kind of um, <laughs> the kind of glory that you expect for a job like that. It's not an easy job. I mean, imagine a scenario where yeah, you're a, as an FBI agent, you're expecting those Friday evening uh, afternoon calls. Uh, you know, you know shits about the defendant. Um, but these guys are always walking on pins and needles, twenty four seven, until something actually does happen. It's not easy work, and I guess this is why I'd rather work on the offensive side rather than the defensive side.
0: Yeah. I mean, but we need those guys. So let's not talk them out of uh, getting into those jobs. So we definitely need those defensive guys out there. So it's a, it's a still a good job to, to get into the cybersecurity industry. So Hector, we've been getting a lot of great questions at uh, questions at hacker in the um, You know, the audience is really reaching out. I, I've met a lot of great people. Uh, I try to write back to as many as I can. I've just started to, you know, talking back and forth with a retired NYPD investigator who uh, is doing work outside now. Really great getting to meet great people and hear great stories. Um, I, I will say one of the, one of the topics we talked about before, you mentioned that you didn't want to mispronounce someone's name. Um, so uh, listener, Chris wrote into us asking us to, uh, that, to tell more information or give more information about some of the stories we uh, we have. So we've decided that we're going to post the URLs or the, the, the uh, anything that we talk about on the show, we're going to ask Phineas, who is, you know, our great producer, uh, to put those URLs in the podcast description. So um, for anyone else that's been missing some of the stories we're talking about and, and wants to get more information, uh, they can thank Chris for writing in and asking us to include
1: that. Oh yeah, that, that is such a great idea. And you know what's funny? We've, we've talked about that before. Like how can we get some of these sources and URLs and reports? Out to the audience in a way that makes sense, right? Sometimes reading somebody's URLs o- online, you know, o- on a recording, uh, is terrible for the ears. And maybe at some point in the future, we'll put a site up. But I think for now, the description works. So shout out to Chris for bringing it up again.
0: And so next, the next text I kind of want to talk to you about a, a listener that wrote in and, and see if we can come up with some help. Kind of if, if we can't, maybe someone in the audience can write into us and, and help us come up with an answer. So, so a listener named Pamela, she wrote in that because we did an episode. few weeks back about spoofing um and she wrote in that she's been a victim of spoofing from both phone calls and text messages Uh, apparently an ex-boyfriend of hers is spoofing numbers of family members so she'll pick up the phone thinking it's one of her children and it'll be the ex-boyfriend uh messing with her um so i wrote back to pamela and told her you know give her as much help as i can um i know i normally don't we put these ones on the podcast um, because you know this is a i don 't want to help these people that are, are doing the spoofing or you know these ex boyfriends are messing with with their ex girlfriends i, I don 't want to give them any sort of way of how to defeat this stuff. Um, so we went back and forth with Pamela and, and the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, there could be a lot of people in the audience that are suffering from this. Um, you know, whether it's themselves, they have a daughter or a mother or any family member that's just being, you know, a victim of this. Um, you know, the spoofing, you know, I I did a little more research into it, um, that spoofing is only illegal in the United States if the caller aims to commit a fraud, obtain something of value or harm an individual. When you're the target of harassment via of a spoof number, uh, then the technology being used to spoof the calls is very much illegal and falls within this. Unfortunately, I, I really didn't come up with a great answer of how to stop these spoofed calls coming in. There's some applications out there that does some anti-spoofing. But really what they do is just keep a database and update that database of numbers that are used in spoofing, uh, this one doesn't kind of fit Pamela's situation uh, because you know they're, they're spoofing the, the the known numbers, numbers that were in her contact information. Hector, can you come up with any ideas of, of how to ha- stop spoofed phone calls, or do you have any experience with that? And if you don't, you know maybe some in the audience does, and they can write in and kind of contact Hector and I, and you know then we can pass that information on to Pamela.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a, it's an interesting topic, right? You have to understand that. Spoofing is very much part of you know, how outbound phone calls work. If you were to, for example, if you were to spoof a call, you would require some sort of trunk, it would require some sort of phone system that you control where you can specify arbitrary SIDs or call IDs. Okay? The phone company sees the real number, but your phone may actually look at the SID or the call ID and look it up in the context. That's how spoofing may work for, for folks now, okay? Um, that's definitely problematic, but it's part of specification. It's just the way it works.
0: Does your phone see that SID or does it only see the fake, the spoofed SID? Or would it see, if it looks at the incoming information, would it see it? Like, could someone possibly write an, uh, an app uh, that looks at that incoming call data and can tell you?
1: Yeah, and I'm pretty sure there might be an app for that. I just don't know it at the top of my head. Uh, and I'm not even sure if you have to like jailbreak your phone to be able to access that. But the way the way spoofing works, right? You it requires that that SID parameter is is kind of uh, modified. Usually, when you call someone right now, if you were to call me on your phone right now, it'll send a blank SID. and then from my end, my phone will look your number up in a, in my contacts and say, "Okay, this is Chris calling you." Okay. Now, if someone uses an app to to make a spoof call and that spoof call actually includes an arbitrary SID with your number in it, I'll get the phone call on my phone. It'll say, hey, Chris is calling you, right? That's problematic. So now the question is, how do we deal with that? Well, you will we need some sort of app that's going to sit between you and these phone calls and look up the SID and try to identify whether that's a valid number or it's a spoofed number. And then it can actually tell you that.
0: Is there like a checksum or something in that information that comes over?
1: No, if you were to look at the raw data like the, the way the raw call happens is basically like a, uh, like let's say the SID could be, it could be an empty string or a blank string, string, or it could have a number within the string and then a space and the phone number you're trying to call. Pretty straightforward. So when your, call, call, when your phone calls me right now, that string will be blank. When you're spoofing the call, that string will have the number you're spoofing. So now you need some sort of app or you need some sort of man in the middle it's going to look at the incoming call and say, okay, this call has a SID on it, and the SID does not match the call, the, the phone number that's coming in, the source the source number. And at that point, there could be an alert that says, hey, this is a spoof call. Now, you cannot spoof SMS, okay? You can spoof phone calls, but with SMS, it's a little bit more complex. You would have to sign up for something like and then get a phone number, register a phone number that's as closest as the target you want to spoof, okay? And then you can send messages out as that person. Now it's up to you, the victim, to confirm or validate whether that number that just came in is the person that you're expecting or not. And usually it's going to be just a phone number. It's not going to be your contacts because there's no way to spoof that, at least not now. It's not that I know of.
0: Yeah. How does SMS do the, the check that the f- incoming phone calls don't?
1: As far as I remember, it should be similar to like SMTP. There is a destination. There is a source. There are headers. Okay. And... um But that source, when you get the text message on your phone, your phone is going to parse those messages, those headers, and then put the source number as the sender or source email because you can actually email SMS text messages as well. So if you ever get a text message on your phone, it's either a phone number that looks weird or uh, an email address, then someone's sending you a raw SMS or through an app. Okay, But yes, so that's kind of how SMS works. Uh, the reality is, is that you know one way to deal with the SMS portion is to focus your communications on something like Signal or WhatsApp, even though it's still theoretically possible to do the same thing with WhatsApp and even the same with Signal. If you, have, if you were able to register a number close enough to the person you're trying to impersonate, at least there you could go off by signatures. At the very least with Signal, you can. You could verify someone's identi- uh, identity through their signature. If you have a new message with a new signature – that person's most likely full of shit. Okay.
0: Yeah. That was my advice to Pamela to switch over to, you know, a signal type uh, SMS messenger or a signal type messaging app uh, much harder for it to, I, I think there are some doing some research online. I think there is some, are some ways that people can spoof F- SMS, you know, it needs a specialized software to do it, but anybody in the audience that knows how, you know, we can, you know, what apps are out there to, you know, detect spoof calling um, or, or a different solution besides just switching messaging uh, applications for, you know, solving spoof text, please reach out to us. Questions at hackerinthefed.com. You know, Hector and I would love to learn more about it. And uh, if that's sort of information we could pass on uh, and help Pamela, you know, because she's, she's tried to go to law enforcement and not got a really good response. Um, and so, you know, anything we can do to, to help, that'd be great.
1: Oh yeah. Sounds great. And I'm looking forward to responses.
0: Another great episode, Hector. Uh, for those uh, those listeners, uh, new episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Hector, I appreciate you going through this. You sound like your your voice is a little banged up, so you might not be <laughs> in tip-top shape. So I appreciate you getting through the episode and uh, look forward to t- speaking to you again next week.
1: Of course. Likewise, my friend. It's always a pleasure. I'm very happy that we're doing this project together. But not only that. I'm very happy that, um, you know, we're able to share perspective and knowledge with the audience and they're, they're reactive, right? They're reaching out to us and asking questions. Kind of going back to what I said, it's always a pleasure, my friend, and we'll speak soon. Cheers. Cheers, brother.